am really happy to spend this time together. Yeah, thanks we, for having uh, me. I, I, I always enjoy hanging out with you. Likewise. And um, you were uh, high, high on the list on the Sons of Anarchy series, you know, so named by John Stavell. Um, he, he's interested in, in, you know, the multi-generational development families and, uh, you know, the leadership styles change, which is why I think he chose that name. As if like the dads were... You know, there was some anarchy, you know, different big personalities, kind of Wild West type uh, stories coming out of the older generation and and how uh, this new wave of leaders are coming in with very different leadership styles and getting amazing results. And, you know, what that's been like for for these people growing up in, in those development families and, and then taking over. Yeah, cool. I'm, I'm happy to get into that, but I kind of want to start at the beginning a little bit and just talk about you. Just the person, (laughs) (laughs) but rather going to the very, very beginning. Um, how's it going now? You got a young family and yeah, it's busy. Yeah. 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 But busy's good. How old are your kids now? Uh, eight this weekend, five and six months. Nice. A daughter, a son and a daughter. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Oh, it's the best part of life. It is. Yeah. It's, it's the most special part. And, uh, uh, just talking to some friends and, you know, we all agreed that you can't have too many kids. I mean, at some point you're probably wondering if, if, if three or four or five might be too many, but yeah. uh, it makes a, a lot of love around the house. And, you know, if you have the means and a big heart, it's, uh, yeah. it's one of the most fulfilling things in life, if not the most fulfilling thing in life. What's yeah. your, what's your end goal number? Uh, being six months in, I think it might be too soon to look at number four, but I, I, I wouldn't mind rounding out number four and, uh, yeah, yeah, I think the number going girl, boy, girl, boy, you know, that would be ideal, but Hey, if it was girl, boy, girl, girl, then all, all good. That's yeah. Just, just as good. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Man, so I know so many people that are having like four kids, you know, it's, um, you know, we're not farmers. They're not all going to plow the field and help out around the farm. But, but, uh, I think like, it's like what you said, if you, if you have the means and if you can do it, why not do it? Yeah. If you think you're enjoying it now and it's so busy and so crazy, imagine what it'd be like when you're old, you know, and you have more kids that they want to hang out with you and and more grandkids and all that. It's going to be be awesome. More the merrier. I love it. I love it. So what was it like, um, what was your childhood like growing up, you know, the son of a developer and tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, my dad was primarily in the finance business focused, uh, on the U S and, and a little bit of multifamily acquisition and, and rehabilitation again in the, the States. And, uh, uh, definitely I think created a great opportunity for me to learn by osmosis around the dinner table. Uh, there were years where I for sure felt like, there were, was a big shadow being cast and large shoes to fill. And that was daunting and a bit tormenting at times, but, uh, I think it was also a great, uh, a great example to follow and, and something to live up to and, uh, was very formative in, in making me who I am today. And, yeah. uh, what's nice is that being that my dad, John is very focused on the finance side of the business. It gave me a great runway to really pursue development, which I'm passionate about and, uh, to carve out my own niche and, and to not feel like, um, I was working for him or, uh, forever going to be known as the son of, of John, you know? And, uh, so yeah, that's been a great, uh, a great opportunity to, to carve out my own, um, path and hopefully leave my own legacy, uh, with that. Yeah. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah. I have a younger brother. He's, uh, 
Rebecca's 35 and my sister's 33. Yeah. And my brother works in the business with my dad and has a great uh, niche carved out for himself there. And it works out very well and great dynamic. And we all have a great relationship and really enjoy each other. So it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful that it's all worked out that way because in a lot of families it uh, can be very difficult to manage those dynamics and um, different people vying for different positions and competition and, and just, yeah, more of a, an attitude of um, exclusion versus, versus in- inclusivity, which is what we've been able to create, which is really special, I think. Yeah. Did you and your brother ever fight? We did up until a point. Uh, he's an inch taller than I am. Really? And, uh, yeah. You're huge. I, I stopped. Uh, I stopped testing that. Uh, <laughs> testing that that avenue when I realized that we could both end up in the hospital if uh, we really got into it. So yeah, up until probably I was in tenth grade. He was in eighth grade, and he was getting getting pretty close to as big as I was. No I, yeah, I just uh, had to respect his uh, stature. You don't want to get beat up by your little brother. No, that you would be embarrassing. Yeah, I didn't put myself in that position. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you say your sister works in the business too? Uh, she owns and operates a portfolio of apartment buildings. So oh, cool. yeah, she's uh, um, in in the uh, multifamily income producing yeah. side of the business. Yeah. Did you think of your dad as a developer or a financier or Financier. Yeah. 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 Very distinctly a financier. He really, uh, he would say that he picked people, pick cycles, uh, and of course picks pieces of property, but, uh, never, uh, was in the operational side of developing, uh, the property and unless, uh, things went sideways and you had to, to step in, but, uh, yeah, overwhelmingly a financier. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, I've heard about him for years. You know, my first ever, project where I was a sales manager way, way, way back. Uh, he was the financier of that project. Interesting. Yeah. And that's when I first heard about him, but, uh, yeah, big name in the industry, but, uh, I guess the line gets blurred because he's in the development industry that yeah. people might refer to him as a developer, but, yeah. but quite clearly in the finance side. Yeah. And he's, he's a pretty understated guy and isn't really out there. And, uh, I think a people, a lot of people have maybe heard of him, but not really interacted a ton with him or, um, wouldn't realize the reach he's had in terms of the the companies that are now blue chip developers in our city that he's financed uh, historically. So, um, yeah, he, he's he's had a reach locally as well as as I said in the states, but uh, has kept a very low profile with that. And and I have a lot of respect for that. And as I get older, there's a lot of virtues that I see in yeah, that approach. So. No doubt. How did he get into it? I guess he. Um, was trained as a lawyer and uh, uh, actually prior to being a lawyer owned and operated a university painting company, basically the precursor to university painters. You know, you see the the lawn signs out there and uh, he, um, he he started a painting business when he was in high school and paid to put himself through law school uh, with that. And then uh, got trained as a lawyer, knew he never wanted to be a lawyer, but it was a great uh, training to go into business and uh, um, started acquiring property and, and trading the property. And actually the first piece of property that he ever owned uh he sold to avatar baines and it was avatar baines's first piece of property that avatar ever owned and uh so uh got to start that way and then uh found a knack for for identifying opportunities in apartment buildings predominantly in the west end of vancouver and uh started raising capital around that and was an er early syndicator in that space and uh and then expanded uh into the states because he felt that 
you know, the economy and the opportunity down there was just much greater than in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, you've got California, which is the sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, maybe fact check that. But uh, at one point in time, it was the sixth largest in the world from a sovereign nation perspective, let alone a state. Wow. And uh, if you go down there and you're participating in that type of environment, uh, I think there's just a lot more opportunity that's afforded and probably um, some less efficiency in the market too that is conducive to arbitrage. So better returns, uh, higher risk, but potentially better returns. When did he go down there? Um, early 80s, yeah. Wow. He would, he would uh, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, he ended up in Houston in 1982 and tells that story. And, you know, I think that uh, has really uh, informed his decisions following uh, that period, not only with interest rates going haywire like they did, but also uh, not being in a market that is so highly correlated to uh, a commodity like oil. And yeah. uh, he really, really did not want to be um, subject to that. So um, finding more diversified job centers that have uh, a range of industries that are, are, are contributing to their um, job growth and population growth and, and with that uh, uh, higher income levels. Yeah. Cool. Oh, tell me about rugby. When did you first start playing? Uh, I got pushed into playing rugby in grade seven, actually. Yeah. At St. George's school where I, I went, uh, How do you mean pushed in? Uh, talked in? Well, I think I was a larger, uh, person <laughs> still am, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, one of the teachers, uh, um, saw me and just said, you need to be on the rugby field. And, uh, I was a bit of a softy, bit of a gentle giant and like to think I still am. And, uh, in any event found myself out there and, uh, a bit of a crash course in it, but, uh, yeah, didn't really gain a passion for it until I was probably in 10th or 11th grade and saw my, uh, challenge. I was challenged vertically from a, uh, a jumping standpoint. So basketball wasn't going to go anywhere. And, uh, uh, yet it was a great development for my athleticism and playing basketball that correlated well to, to success in rugby. So, um, I saw a much longer runway ahead of me in playing rugby and, uh, and really pursued that. And, I, I wanted to go to a high level in some athletic pursuit and rugby was that avenue and allowed me to play for my country, which is, I think, the greatest honor that anybody can have. And uh, I made some of my best friends through it who are still some of my greatest friends today and never would have met my wife if it hadn't been for rugby. Actually. Oh, really? So, yeah. How's that? Uh, I played rugby with her brother, under 19 national uh, for Canada. And uh, I was walking down a beach in Trinidad and Tobago and her dad came down with her mom and sister and um uh actually my dad went to law school with him so i was walking down the beach on an off day and uh he said hey is your last name Makai?" and i said yeah and he said well uh yeah i think i know your dad john and uh it's like oh wow small world so they had gone to law school together and actually lived in victoria where i was going to end up for university and uh made very very good friendship with uh with their son callahan and uh and then the rest is history i met met sophie and uh i guess i was that uh that friend who went for went for the sister so all's all's well that ends well right so yeah i guess it's okay when it works out like this right? yeah 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 that's be so nice you got your yeah. brother-in-law that's well, it's special i have buddy. a i have a best friend yeah. in my wife of course but also in in her brother and her family yeah they're wonderful people I was always interested to ask you more about, um, you know, meeting Bill Clinton and that, mm -hmm. that, that's that thing that you did when you were young. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, 
my dad got into that uh, through uh, his friend Frank Justra. Uh, Clinton Foundation was doing a lot of great work in poverty alleviation, um, childhood development, and uh, mitigating the effects of HIV/AIDS, malaria, some of these really um, major afflictions that uh, plague uh, Africa, the continent of Africa particularly. And uh, uh, so he got on board with that, and I had the the distinct privilege of being included on a trip to. Uh, South Africa, Zambia, and Tanzania, and um, through that met the president and uh, was afforded the opportunity to, to have an internship in New York, which was just wonderful. It was uh, one of those sort of life experiences that I wouldn't trade for for, for anything and uh, um, ended up playing golf with President Clinton and uh, yeah, just being in his presence. Uh, like in was the really same special. foursome? Yeah. Like yeah. literally playing. Yeah. And uh, wild. met Nelson Mandela uh, while we were in uh, South Africa in Johannesburg. Uh, it was his birthday and uh, our contingent was invited to his birthday celebration and uh, have, have a really nice photo where I've got, you know, former president of the United States and Nelson Mandela, who I'm, whose hand I'm shaking. And uh, wow. yeah, it was sort of a surreal experience and can't pretend that I deserve to be there, but uh, call it the lucky sperm club. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, was just very, uh, yeah, very fortunate to be included in that, that and have cool. life experiences like that. Yeah. I heard Nelson Mandela's granddaughter speak uh, last month in South Africa and, uh, and she wept talking about her grandma actually about the unsung hero that her grandma was, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sort of, um, woman behind the man, so to speak mm -hmm. in the old fashioned mm -hmm. expression. Um, and you know how much she suffered through everything that, you know, Nelson was going through and her keeping it all together, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, often, uh, living in fear and, and yet still raising a family and giving birth to kids and mm -hmm. just all types of crazy stuff. It was, uh, it's yeah. an awesome experience. But behind every successful man is an even stronger and more successful woman. I I firmly believe that. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, and in that case, that was the story that she was telling. Yeah, I think her grandma gave birth to her, and uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was actually on Freedom Day uh, in South Africa, which is the day when they celebrate. Um, that's the day that they got the vote, the right to vote, which is a huge deal there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that yeah, was awesome. Um, so now you're a businessman. You're always in a suit. You're, uh, you know, even now you're wearing a blazer. Only for you. Just yeah. for you. Just for you. <laughs> I believe it. I've never seen you not. You're such a pro. Um, so tell me about your, your your vision for Strand. You know, you got a nice new office downtown and, uh, um, you know, you guys are very successful. People say really great things about you and the buildings that you're doing. Um, also want to hear about your kind of your specialty or your niche. It's, uh, I noticed that you, um, when you kind of started leading and taking over and a lot of developers have done it now, but you jumped pretty strongly into rental, mm -hmm. um, ahead of a lot of other people. Was there some strategy behind that? Was that intentional? Are you just looking for good deals? Yeah, I think opportunistic and being entrepreneurial, but ultimately leaving a legacy that I can be proud of. I, you know, when I boil it down, I just want to be on my deathbed one day because we'll all be there, uh, whether we realize it or not. And, uh, I, I just want to reflect back and be proud of, um, a body of work that I feel contributed positively to society and, and, uh, to the planet we live on. And I think we're facing an unprecedented affordability crisis that, uh, is probably a cliche in, in the combination of those words, but, and, and highly obvious, but, uh, 
um, I felt that that was something that I was passionate about, um, could do something about, and uh, would also leave a, a positive outcome on the community that uh, has given me so much. So um, it was really, it really began with that. And then um, from a vision standpoint, just wanted to create an office with people who had that same vision and and wanted to work alongside um, other people who were at the top of their game. And I find my job is, um, in addition to, of course, finding opportunity and driving the growth of our company and having some vision around that is finding the, the best people possible to accomplish that goal. And uh, um, really, uh, I do believe that uh, you're only as good as your people. And uh, we've done our, our darndest to populate our office with the best people in the business. And I think we have some of the best people in the business, if not the best people in the business. And that's, that's going to be um, uh, an objective of ours till Strand doesn't exist. Uh, I don't know if my kids will be crazy enough to to take it on one day, or or if that'll be what their passion is. But uh, but I think that as long as we're around, that'll be a a, a value that we hold very uh, very dearly to. How old are you now? Thirty seven. Just such a young buck. <laughs> Already three kids and running a super. I feel, cool I feel a lot older. Yeah, you might be in terms of experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 37, that's amazing, man. Um, so what, what are your people's strategies? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like anything, uh, you know, it's a challenge right now, mm -hmm. you know, post COVID and, and mental health and, uh, where, and when people work and all that kind of stuff, what have you figured out? Uh, I think having a, a physical environment where people are invigorated uh, by and uh, they want to come into and, and spend their time there is is very important. I think, uh, as per my previous point, uh, putting very talented people alongside them in that space and making sure that we're populating our office with top talent that will inspire other people to to reach higher and to to achieve their true potential uh, is uh, a great strategy that's paid dividends for us. I think having a body of work and of course, capital to support that work uh, is is conducive to people wanting to come to our, our company. Um, and then, yeah, having a vision for growth and, and really feeling like the sky is the limit uh, and inspiring people around that has, uh, has really served us well. We offer a hybrid program to our staff. Um, it's certainly not as generous as a lot of places. It's uh, two days a month where they can go and, and work uh, from home, but we are really firm believers in uh, the value of being in the same space together and uh, having that organic connection, both on a personal and professional level. And, and uh, yeah, it may sound idealistic, but I'd love for our team to, to feel very fulfilled by the work they do together, but also to enjoy going out and and having a meal or being social together outside of the office. And yeah, it may not be realistic that that's going to happen for everybody, but uh, that's the environment that we're trying to create. And also being very generous from a compensation standpoint, from um, an opportunities perspective, uh, doing things out of the walls of the office that people may not otherwise get to do in their day-to-day -day, day -day lives. Um, just certain little perks, I think, go a long way uh, as well. And, and people feel cared for. And ultimately, I think everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to feel like they're cared for. And if you do that and you focus on it and, and you're genuine about it, I think you're going to, you're going to attract the best people to, to your business and the outcomes will follow that. Yeah. That's uh it's well thought out. I mean, you're, 
You're such a likable person too. I mean, imagine you're in the office a lot and people, you know, have the opportunity to be there and get FaceTime with you. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I'm a firm believer in leading by example and, um, and servant leadership. You know, I'm, I'm there to unlock people's true potential. And, and in some ways, of course, that is self-serving because if I do that, then our, our outcomes are going to, I think, be more successful. But uh, um, on a human level, if it doesn't feel good and it isn't the right thing to do, um, I don't care how much money you stand to make. It's just not worth it for me. And and maybe that's a little bit about informed by my background and not having to need for anything in my life. But um, in my mind, the vision that I have for for an organization and for for the organization that I'm a part of is where people feel fulfilled, they feel valued, and they feel like they have every opportunity to um, realize, as I said, their, their full potential and, and be compensated for that as well. Do you have company values that you talk about? Yeah. Company? Yeah. We're, uh, um, I mean, of course, integrity, uh, we're involved, uh, we're invested in everything we do. Um, ultimately, uh, our word is our bond. If, if, if we say we're going to do something, it doesn't matter if we're going to lose money by doing doing it. Ultimately, we're going to follow through, and uh, we're in it for the long term. And I'd rather give up short term gains and maintain our integrity for the long term than um, than compromise that. And yeah. uh, uh, I, you know, read uh, Sam Zell's book, and the word uh, Shem Tov, a good name, uh, is something that has really resonated with me and informed everything that I've tried to do. I haven't read that. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's a great book. And uh, another takeaway for, for us has been when 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 they go left, you go right. You know, and sometimes that's the smart thing to do. Other times, maybe not. But With the uh, market, you mean? Generally speaking, yeah, yeah in business. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think just finding opportunity, you know, I think when people have taken a contrarian view or done things that aren't necessarily with a herd mentality, that's sometimes where the greatest reward has been, been yielded. I uh, agree. Maybe a higher risk, but, uh, yeah. uh, I think it, if you're intelligent about it and you, you know when to do that and you don't just default to that out of like a myopic focus on, I'm going to be the contrarian just for the sake of it. All the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I think it can yield some really, really special results. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting. I love it. Plus it's more fun. Yeah. And more challenging. Yeah. And you know, some and more people, rewarding. Yeah. Some people will probably talk some shit and you know, all the more motivation to, to succeed. Yeah, so. totally. <laughs> How do you think, you know, when is the right time to, to be contrarian or take a contrarian point of view or even action on something? Yeah, I I think it really is highly dependent on the timing, the circumstances, uh, the opportunity. You know, I look at our Prior Street project and and buying that piece of land when somebody had bought it for half what we paid for it uh, 11 months after they closed and the St. Paul's Hospital not being announced at that point in time, uh, nor was there any land use planning that supported what we wanted to do. But having the vision and the long term knowledge that that was where the city was going to go and, and grow and um, fundamentally that there weren't many, if any, options for St. Paul's Hospital to move. Um, I think, you know, we've been very fortunate. All three of our children were born at St. Paul's and they deliver the highest standard of care and have the best people, I think, in the medical system, yet they don't have the infrastructure to support that level of talent. And uh, and 
So I, I, in my mind, was very convicted in knowing that that hospital had to move. And in our city, there weren't many other opportunities of where they could go. I'd love to say I had some insider information, but no. it was really just this this correlation of information and having a vision um, yeah. that uh, that 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 drove that conviction. And of course, people to support that uh, in our partners and kind of like looking at isn't it about looking at what's seeing what's obvious sometimes too mm -hmm. like you had this personal experience and you know you can look at the city and say well they're not going to move out too far out of the downtown core that seems like the best place so mm -hmm. seems like a safe bet what was it in the 19th century it was go west my son uh, or if that was the you know in the in the states uh, everybody was leaving the east coast and moving out west and the oregon trail and the rest of it uh, probably even earlier earlier than that but uh uh, in Vancouver, I think it's go east, my son. You know, like it's it's. You look out the window, and there's only one way for the city to grow. Because yeah, it's not uh, it's not happening on the downtown peninsula. No, so. totally. That contrarian idea. I think in my mind, it seems like it seems more attractive when you know when things are balanced and no one's sure what to do. It's not obvious, but. Uh, when everyone starts going in, in one direction, like when it's uh, like use words myopic, when, when it seems like everybody's convinced that that's the right thing to do. Um, that's when the contrarian view, I think gets most interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when people have had a, um, herd mentality for a long period of time, you're probably, uh, you're probably smart to think, is this something I should continue to follow? Because um, no market continues to go like this. No asset class or or position or strategy is always going to to um, you know ride a hockey stick curve. And uh, at that point, you should probably consider um, breaking with with yeah. the conventional uh, wisdom or lack thereof. Totally. Yeah. You got to think that the last sort of followers or joiners in that movement where it seems like everybody's going, um, that they're just followers. They're just going because everyone else is there. And, and that price is whatever it is and whatever industry it is, has probably been bought up so much that mm. there's better deals elsewhere. Yeah. I think if anybody can do it, uh, your returns are going to reflect that and your risk will probably be, um, be higher because there's not a, uh, a barrier to entry or, um, uh, yeah, a constraint on on supply, for instance, which um, I don't think is a good thing for our society, but it's certainly um, been accretive for people who have bought land and, and taken certain um, positions. Now, that's a pretty broad statement. Uh, that doesn't apply to every land deal we've, you know, I've, uh, we've overpaid for land. I, I think many people probably will have in their career, but, uh, um, probably I think everybody at one point yeah, or another. Yeah. Well, and, and those are the most informative, um, deals. I mean, you learn from your failures more than you do your successes. And, uh, I think also though, um, you earn your stripes and how you deal with those, uh, challenging situations, even if they're not failures, um, whether it's your partner's the bank, the market, they're going to look at how you dealt with effectively a shit sandwich and, and how you manage that. And were you acting in, in, in integrity and in a way that was going to realize the best possible outcome, despite your circumstances. And did you fight for that, you know? Um, and did you do it in a, in an honorable way ultimately? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's character building. That's, reputation. That, that builds reputation. Yeah, yeah, totally. In terms of your dad's leadership style and the differences with your own, you mentioned before that, uh, he managed to keep under the radar. Um, mm. That's, it seems like such a smart idea, you know, that he, he doesn't have to always be on. 
um, you know, is an approach that restaurants can just, you know, mix yeah. and mingle like, uh, like, uh, in comfort, you know, um, what other differences are there between, uh, I mean, his business would be less people intensive. I'm guessing on the mm -hmm. finance side, you yeah. probably already have a lot more employees than he ever did. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's really a, uh, a finance business with, um, some middle and upper management, but, uh, highly finance and accounting focused. And, uh, we're very much an operating company with multiple divisions, finance and accounting development construction, which, uh, on some select select deals we're bringing in house, albeit with our larger deals, I think we'll always use our, our, our partners at Axiom who have been the best in the business to deal with. Um, and then, uh, uh, from there, I think there's aspirations to do more outside of real estate as well. We don't want to be known as as simply a real estate company uh, in perpetu perpetuity. I don't know that that's necessarily something we're going to be um, throwing our full weight behind in the near term, but certainly we're going to start dipping our toe into um, certain perhaps trade-related businesses where we can control some of the vertical integration and ultimately the supply chain, um, which I think is uh, a major risk for any developer right now. And, uh, um, you know, you look at concrete prices, uh, who, who is going to figure, figure out, uh, how to create a batch plant for concrete, you know, and, and cause we need more, it's just a very difficult use to land in our region. And those are ideas that are bouncing around in our head and being more of a, a private equity company and entrepreneurial, uh, at our core than, uh, just saying, you know, we have to developer. We have to develop because that's what developers do, and developers develop. And you know, down in the states, developers develop themselves off a cliff. And yeah, the saying is, litigators litigate, surgeons operate, and developers develop. You know, and and they just do it without <laughs> without thinking about the market or or where they, where they are in a cycle. And uh, we don't want to just be uh, falling into that type of trap. Nor do we want to be um, typecast as as an organization uh, in the long term that is is solely um, that, uh, a real estate company, I think we have, uh, bigger ambitions. Yeah, that's cool. Plus it's so fun. It is. I yeah, mean, real I, estate's awesome, but there's a lot of other cool stuff too. Yeah, no, well, and I, I think the great thing about the real estate business is no two days are ever the same. And, uh, I know that waking up in the morning, I'm going to talk to perhaps a banker, and then I'm going to talk to somebody who's, you know, uh, running a wind load calculation on a high rise and, and everything in between. And that's, uh, that's one of the most fruitful things about our profession is that, uh, there's such, such an eclecticism, uh, to it. And, and the diversity uh, of that really, uh, is what I enjoy most, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. And I like the scale and the permanence of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the people in it and how competitive it is and, uh, that you can reach out and touch it. There's so many things I like about it. Yeah. I mean, I think back to your previous question, the permanence is a huge thing and, and we've got rental uh, developments. We've also got condo developments. We've got industrial developments. We've got uh, office and retail, uh, you know, hey, you're I, not specialized. Yeah. You're I think we're, shotgun. We, we don't want to, we didn't really want to be typecast. And I think I look at the largest organizations in our, in our market. And one of the common underlying themes they all share is that they, each have a very robust income producing portfolio that can fuel their growth and their new business or can keep the lights on when times are tougher and they shouldn't fall into that developer trap of just developing because that's what developers do. And uh, I think we've made it our focus early on to try to create that type of structure so that um, in the mid to long term, we're, we're given flexibility. And uh, um, again, I think we want to be opportunistic and able to 
insert ourselves in a good opportunity, regardless of if it's an industrial deal or, or a multifamily rental apartment deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a pretty common approach, tried and true, obviously. Mosaic is the the company that comes to mind is like the most specialized when they started. They said, we're going to build the best roams in the industry period. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they did, you know, they they accomplished that and they're diversifying now. They are. Yeah. But yeah, most companies like you are are looking to diversify right off the bat and to, uh, get the safety of that and also look for really good deals, you know, absolutely. And they can come in any sort of sector. So I see the industry evolving, you know, looking back in our development industry, in our market, it was dominated by family businesses, you know, uh, for decades. Um, uh, typically, you know, Italians that immigrated here that uh, started with nothing and saved and built and saved. And then, uh, and then a second generation kind of took over and, and looked at what uh, dad had built up in terms of equity and a couple of apartment buildings and stuff. And then they leveraged that and, and scaled it to some massive companies now. But there's a lot of developers now that are using OPM, other people's money. They're mm-hmm. taking investment um, because the capital requirements of projects are so huge. The projects are bigger. Um, you know, uh, lending construction loans might be a little tougher to get. Uh, and you guys are doing that too. It's not, Absolutely. you're not just taking uh, uh, money from your dad's finance company. It's investors and institutional as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah we've got some institutional partners from Toronto, um, that we've been fortunate enough to connect with over the last few years. And I, I, I don't think that's possible, uh, without having a resource or an opportunity to tap into capital like I did with my dad. And, um, I know, um, another prominent, well, a much more prominent developer than I am, uh, once said I was born on third base and, you know, I've been very fortunate to take <laughs> advantage of that. And I would say, uh, I was yeah, born on second or third base myself. And, and my mentality is if I don't round the, the bases a few times, then I probably haven't done enough with it. But, uh, to your question, um, having the access to that capital was absolutely intri- integral to getting us off the ground and to, to being able to for us to get to the point that we are right now. Um, and in doing so, it allowed us to draw the attention of other major capital partners and and some more retail level capital partners. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, my dad was an early sort of syndicator, uh, uh, limited partnership type uh, investment deals that he would offer to doctors, lawyers, professionals, other um individuals out there who wanted to uh, get some exposure to real estate and uh, uh, we still do that uh, as well. So it really depends on the deal and the profile of, of the opportunity and the returns that are available uh, in determining whether it's something we bring to an institution or if we're go- going to go to um, a great base of long-term strand investors uh, to off- offer the opportunity to them. And, and sometimes it's both. Sometimes we have a component of, of, of both parties in, in the deals. But if the world was to come to an end, we ultimately want to be survivors. You know, we don't want to be um, uh, all in on something and taking huge financial risk that we're burying ourselves uh, uh, that could compromise the long-term existence of Strand and our family's livelihood. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, it's a nice sound. It is. Yeah. Especially on a warm, sunny day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm regretting wearing this uh, monkey suit. <laughs> <laughs> You're so handsome. <laughs> so is that how you do it? Is that how you raise capital? Just looking so good? No. 
yeah. Uh, what do you do? What is it? Uh, is there a, uh, like what's like for imagine some people starting out thinking Mike's right. You know, um, I don't have uh, the family resources, and even if I did, I wouldn't put all the eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I need to raise capital. Um, what's your approach? How do you how do you do it? I've already uh, talked about caring for your reputation. I guess that's the ground. If if you ground floor. if you have a a good deal, the the capital will always follow. Um, you will always be able to capitalize a good business plan, and I'm a very firm believer in that. Regardless of your track record or lack of access to capital, it may not be on the most attractive terms for you to begin with, but see as it see it as an opportunity to perform and and sacrifice your take home on the first deals knowing that if you perform, that's going to create a base uh, and a following that will follow you on your future deals and you'll be able to make it up in the long- Track record. Yeah, and and taking a mid to long-term approach. I think we're in a society where it's instant gratification and it's very, you know, a lot of short-term mindset. And uh, um, I just think that uh, in this business particularly, it takes seven to 10 years sometimes to see a business plan through. You need to be a mid to long-term thinker or, or else you're going to, uh, you're going to go insane. Totally. So how do you handle having investors? I mean, you got small ones, big ones. What's your approach to managing them? Uh, treat them fairly, communicate uh, very extensively and have very dialed in reporting and let them know, you know, quarterly or semi-annually how their investment is performing and how the deal is doing. Um, that is obviously dictating how their perf- performance of their investment is um, uh, and, and treat them, treat them right. And, uh, and ultimately deliver on your promises, do what you say you're going to do. And if you're not going to de- deliver, show them that you're doing everything in your power to, uh, to, 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 to at least, realize the best possible outcome given the circumstances. And one thing we do in our company when we bring investors in um, often, uh, depending on the type of deal, is is we'll be the first loss. Uh, if we're bringing in a retail level investor, we'll subordinate our equity to their distribution of their equity. Whereas a lot of people like the Perry Pursue, I get a, a dollar of equity back, you get a dollar of equity back at the same time. We're the first loss. If a deal goes sideways, we lose our money first. Wow. That's nice. Do they know that, or is that something you just very keep prominent, in? very prominent in all of our investment uh, offerings? Yeah, wow. and I think that's why we have a very strong following is because we're when when we are convicted to doing a deal, they know it's it's going to be backed by us putting our money where our mouth is. Yeah. 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 What is it? What's the minimum for an investor to get into a strand project? I mean, you wouldn't take someone with fifty grand, right? You know, it's we not... try to stick to accredited investors, yeah. and uh, um, notwithstanding, we we do uh, create opportunities for our employees to invest as well, and and we'll actually, um, on certain basis, uh, lend our employees money to invest in our projects because I don't want to be waking up in twenty years from now and and um, hopefully wearing something much more comfortable and casual than this, because <laughs> I, I guess I can, but, uh, um, I don't want to look around and have financial success and the people around me who have been loyal and dedicated for 20 years as well, not realize that success alongside me. It's just, it's just not fulfilling. It just doesn't, doesn't feel good to me. And as I said earlier, if it doesn't feel good, I don't want to do it. Yeah. How do you manage, what's the difference in managing a, is there a difference between uh, having a small investor versus a huge investor like an institution? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, uh, sometimes with a smaller investor, they're not living and breathing real estate every day. And so 
you want to make sure they're fully informed and you're giving them all of the information that uh, that you possibly can to um, make sure they have an understanding of uh, not only the opportunity, but if you're in the deal, uh, what's happening and why it's happening. And, and so being very um, uh, keen to educate where people want to learn and, uh, and, and taking the time to do that and, and really taking a customer service approach to it where you're, you're making them feel like they're very important because they are without, without them, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't operate your business. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really just, I think a lot of people, people skills that you have to have in that regard, it's nothing that's sort of unique to real estate. I don't believe. Yeah. What did you learn at your time at Ani? Did you get that job because of the rugby? Is that part of the rugby <laughs> well, network? I'll never forget. I walked into my interview with a rugby jersey, under 21 national uh, rugby team. and uh, You wore it on, to the interview? On, no, I didn't wear it to the interview. <laughs> yeah. I'd go back in time and punch myself in the face if I did that. But uh, uh, I wore uh, I wore a suit, of course, uh, and I brought the jersey. And really, I was going around town when I was trying to get a, a gig in, in the business um, just asking people if they were in my shoes, what would they do? You know, I was a, a washed up rugby player who had a history degree. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You can imagine the range of answers I got. Uh, but, uh, I walked in and, uh, Rose Rosano and Kevin Carpenter, uh, interviewed me and, um, I just brought the Jersey cause I want to say thank you for, for their support. Oh, and you gave them a Jersey. Uh, I didn't give it to them because, <laughs> you know, the budget at rugby Canada, particularly for an under 21 national team at that time, uh, it's gotten better. Uh, at that time, you know, you got two jerseys and those are going into a frame on the wall. Right. And, uh, I just, you know, wanted them to know that I was a player and that, uh, you showed them. I appreciated, appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. So I showed them and, uh, um, I think they got a Jersey through rugby Canada ultimately that we signed the whole team signed. So they didn't, uh, they weren't, weren't, weren't hard done by, um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, I walked out and they had offered me a job and I was sort of flabbergasted. At your first meeting? At my first meeting, you know, why, you know, wow, like, okay, can I have a night to think about that? (laughs) And I I think uh, I actually followed up with Chris Evans uh, the next day and I was like, absolutely, sign me up. And um, yeah, they gave me as much rope as I could run with without hanging myself. And they're very good at empowering young people to... um, to, to really see an open runway and uh, yet they have the uh, sort of the bumpers on the bowling alley that uh, that keep keep people from really messing things up uh, uh, in a major way and they're they're very prudent in doing that and uh, I owe I owe a lot to them uh, for that opportunity because I wouldn't have gotten it any anywhere else and in the short time I was there I think I was there just under four years um, I think I picked up probably 10 years of experience in, in that time timeline. I left, you know, I was managing nine projects and what a volume, (laughs) just, uh, yeah. Thousands of units of housing. And I was an early (laughs) 20 something guy with probably no business being in that position. But, uh, um, I like to think that I reciprocated and, and being very dedicated. I, I lived and breathed, uh, uh, the business for those years. And I, I mean, I still do, but you know, I was, convicted to being the first in last out and, and the make, yeah, making the most of that opportunity. You know, I was given a very, very unique opportunity to do that. And, and at that, at that age, particularly, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't going to leave there with any regrets. And, uh, in addition, made some great friendships with the people there. They're, they're really first class people. 
What is that job like for people listening that want to get into the industry? I think you're a development manager, I'm guessing. Yeah, um, junior development manager at the start. I think, you know, effectively a development coordinator today. Yeah. What is that job like? Explain it to people. What do you, how do you spend your days? Uh, well, a lot of researching, a lot of reading council minutes, a lot of um, uh, filling out application forms, a lot of un, un glorious work. Uh, but, but through that, you're really getting the foundational understanding of how things, um, are operated in the business and, and the framework that we have to operate within, which is obviously a heavily regulated environment. And, uh, and then just sitting in meetings, just being a sponge, the, the osmosis thing, you know, whether it was the dinner table when I was a kid or, or sitting there in a Tuesday morning construction meeting as Rosano and Bo and, uh, you know, Morris and Julio and, you know, the list goes on, Ian Duke, uh, all of these, these immensely successful people were, were talking about the 30 something projects that they had on the go and the, the nuances of, of those as well as the challenges and how they were going to tackle those, those, those problems. Oh. Uh, that was invaluable. The learning. Yeah. yeah it was, Amazing. it was, uh, better than any formal education I could have ever gotten. And, and I got, I, I did get paid for it. So yeah, yeah, which was even better. So you were 21. You never went to university. I did. I was, I was actually, uh, I did five years at, uh, at UVic. I took a victory lap and, uh, realized that rugby was going to be diminishing returns for me. I didn't, uh, didn't, didn't have what it took to make it there. And, uh, I guess I was, yeah, uh, 20, 22, 23, uh, yeah. Going into, into my time at Ani, 08, 09. Oh, I see. Yeah. Which was, you know, quite a miraculous thing to get hired during that period as well, even if it was a bit of a pause in our market totally. uh, versus the contagion that we saw down south. Yeah. Yeah. The, Ani's so good at, at that, at hiring young people. They like to hire athletes too. Rose yeah. Team, team, team sports, I think, I think that's applicable. I look at people who have played team sports and, and that's a, a meritous thing on our evaluation of, of, um, of them being an employee in our office. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? What's the benefit? Oh, resilience, um, banding together in tough times, knowing how to, uh, deal with multiple different personalities, perspectives, uh, uh, character traits, you know, it's, it's something we have to deal with in life every day. Having a thick skin. That too. Uh, well, yeah, the, the resilience piece, you know, yeah. it's when you get, when you get hit, knocked down, do you get back up? And yeah. is there, is there a team around you to help you with that? And, or can you be the person who helps somebody else when they're like that or in that position and, uh, be judged on performance too at, at Ani or no, in, in any team sport. Oh, oh absolutely. Totally. Yeah. It's, a, it's, used to it. It, it's, that was my well, experience. Rugby particularly is a vicious meritocracy. There's no faking anything. You can't hide. And, uh, yeah, you can run, and I guess some people are fast enough that they can run and and not get smashed. But uh, um, I think it, it is like I hope our business is. It's a it's a meritorious uh, uh, environment where if you step up and you deliver, you're going to be rewarded and you're going to succeed. And uh, I think that's a huge lesson. Yeah, that that is that's that's pretty major, and and is a is a good takeaway for anybody who um, wants to su succeed. Yeah, totally. So what do you do for fun? What do you, when you get home and peel that blazer off, what are you going to do? I thought you might answer or ask this question. Uh, uh, 
I like to travel uh, with my family. We like to experience new cultures, uh, love to eat, as you can tell, um, <laughs> and uh, enjoy enjoy wines from different parts of the world. Uh, we ski. Uh, love in the summer to be on the coast and, and be on the water, boating. Um, pretty Pacific Northwest in that regard. Uh, I don't have any, you know, stamp collection or, or hobby like uh, uh, playing, you know, Minecraft or or some video game here that it's not really my thing but uh yeah it's uh connecting with my family and doing so in different parts of the world and gaining perspective through that and uh experiencing yeah different cultures that's kind of I, I would say what rises to the top for me yeah that's cool I like that too we're planning to go to Bali for uh I haven't told you yet Nick uh, yeah well by the way I'm planning to go to Bali for about a month. Um, Hold it down while he's gone. Yeah, here, here are the keys all over to you. But in December, you know, when there's nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Taking the kids. Um, I think it's a good good way for them to learn. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Actually, I was talking to somebody yesterday and one of the most important experiences for me as a kid growing up was um, going to um, Guatemala and uh, it was a uh, Christian missions trip, and we were uh, delivering formula to underserved communities, you know, people who are living under the poverty line. And uh, it was an infant um, formula program with um, a component of, of course, making th sure that they weren't malnourished. And so we were weighing them and then lice treatments and all that. And I was 16 and I don't know if I had been east of Canby Street at this point in time, let alone down to Guatemala. Um, I had traveled to some great places as a kid, but certainly they were um, uh, not as eye-opening as as that. And uh, just realizing that what we see around us isn't reality and this isn't the world that we live in, um, uh, truly. And, and that really gave me an appreciation for what we have. And I think that's very important as parents uh, to kids who grow up in a privileged world or a privileged environment try to give them that healthy dose of reality. It's critical. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, my family came here to Gastown, which is kind of a third world sometimes. And we walked from here uh, all the way up, all the way into Chinatown to eat. And um, my eight-year-old girl was was scared, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, when, when they got out of the car, when we got out of the car, um, right here by the building, there was, uh, you know, somebody who's there, who's, you know, damaged their brain with drugs and they were moving really erratically. And, uh, and she was kind of terrified to get out of the car, but eventually she got out and wanted to hold my hand. But then we did the walk anyway, because I agree, it's good for, good for kids to see, um, you know, all types of life and people mm. and, uh, and through kind of just getting used to it, you know, the fear kind of went away. Yeah, And as we walked along, you know, I held her hand the whole way, um, but I like that too. So I'm not letting go of it. But this, this really cool thing happened that I didn't think about, but I'd, I'd seen it before when we were years ago and the kids were small and they wouldn't remember, but we were uh, handing out food to homeless people um, with a bunch of other people around the holidays and stuff. Uh, and I saw it then and I saw it just a couple of days ago. But when you walk down the street with young kids somebody will notice the kids and they'll yell kids on the block mm. and they yell it in the direction that you're walking. And so people put, put their drugs away, yeah. maybe don't swear, don't start a fight. They kind of just chill for a minute, mm -hmm. you know, out of respect for the kids. And, um, and my daughter noticed, I literally get chills telling me about it cause I yeah. love it so much. 
Cause it's that common element in human nature where even people that are down and out, the homeless, um, you know, still care about the kids totally. you know? and what they see. And it happened, uh, it happened three blocks in a row. So by, I feel emotional even talking about it, but even by the second block, you know, you know, it happened again. And, uh, by the third block, you know, she was expecting it. And my 12 year old boy was there too, but it was really awesome because it, it accomplished what you were talking about. Um, learning, uh, that, that these people look a little bit scary cause they look different than us. They live differently, but you don't need to be afraid. In fact, they obviously wow. care about you explained why they were saying that and stuff. And it was a really good experience. Yeah. I mean, it not only gives a sense of reality, but hopefully develops a sense of compassion, uh, in your children. And the fact is, is that we're all humans. And as I said earlier, we all want to be loved and people have through certain circumstances ended up in a really unfortunate situation, but it doesn't make them a bad person. And people may have a, a bit of a shock when they um, see the physical uh, manifestation of, of people uh, in the downtown East side, but these are real people who have real feelings. They're somebody's son or daughter and, and brother, or sister and mother, or father. And uh, they're not here because they want to be here. You know, I think that, Truly, uh, a lot of people have been through various different circumstantial things in their lives, uh, moved into a position where they end up here. And uh, and it's very sad. And, and I think we have to be compassionate and try to understand that. And that'll ultimately, I think, create an environment where everybody's more capable of supporting those people in trying to help them turn their lives around or to affect a better outcome for them. And, and through that affect a better outcome for our community. And I just think that people who write people off in the downtown east side because they're down and out or, you know, they may be drug users, um, should probably reconsider that and 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 look at what a compassionate perspective may may deliver. Because as I said, I, I don't think a lot of people down here want to be down here. Um, I think it's it's something that, you know, through mental health, through substance use and addiction and socioeconomic conditions, not to mention um, racial inequality, you know, have all come together in a confluence to put them in this position. And it's the responsibility of people who have means to do something about that or to try to help out to affect um, a positive outcome in that regard. And I'm proud to say that we do what we can to, to do that uh, in our families, uh, support of certain organizations, as well as our companies. Yesterday I parked and, uh, and it finally happened. I finally caught a graffiti artist tagging our building, like for real. <laughs> and I was like, so jacked up about it because it's so annoying. And so I jump out of my car and I run up to him and I say, come on, what are you doing? Like the city makes me paint over this. Like, it's just a waste of money. Like they send me a letter. Like I have no choice. I have to do it. Uh, and the person spins around and it is a middle-aged woman, you know, she looks 60 years old and she's probably a hard 50, realistically a hard wow. life. And, uh, you know, she was of course busted and guilty and it was awkward. And, and, uh, she said, she explained that I started talking to her and she explained that she was leaving a tag that she hoped her son would see because he is a graffiti artist. And, uh, and I was a little bit touched by that. I'm like, oh man, you know, it's just a wall and she's sort of trying to find a way to communicate with her son and I talked to her some more and she didn't have, um, 
she didn't have much. She was pretty down and out. She kind of had like her sleeping bag with her and just a small bag of stuff and told me she was homeless. And anyway, so I ended up asking her if she wanted to repaint the walls, you know, if she wanted to work. And, um, and she seemed interested. She didn't have uh, a phone number or an email address. Um, but I gave her the, I told her we're up in the building on the fifth floor and, uh, that she should talk to George. And, uh, and I was so excited an hour later when George called and said, there's a lady here who wants to paint the building. And yeah, I was so happy that she had the courage to come up, you know, after kind of getting busted and kind of an awkward situation that turned out pretty good, but actually, uh, came up and met George and kind of found out where the paint is and, and, uh, might potentially have some regular work painting over her son's work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's probably going to be calling her son like, Hey, there's a fresh coat of fresh paint. You should get down here right away. <laughs> but I, but I think you gave somebody an opportunity, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's what so many people in the downtown East side need is somebody to take an interest in them and just give them a simple opportunity, extend an olive branch, you know, and, and I think a lot of, um, people like the individual you described would drive a Mack truck through that because nobody has glanced at them, let alone offered to stop, talk and give them an opportunity to, to perhaps make a, a, a living or, or, um, change their lifestyle. Yeah. So I think that for certain individuals, uh, is very powerful. Good for you. Yeah. You said glance. That's like, that's the thing. It's, it's hard for regular people that aren't exposed to it very much that it looks scary. You know, the people look scary. And even when I first approached that woman, you know, there was no eye contact and mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was real weird. But once, uh, once she got comfortable, you know, and, uh, realized that I wasn't going to do anything drastic, uh, call the cops or, or remove her from our private property or anything like that. Once she got comfortable and she started looking me in the eye and you look her in the eye and you see, this is a real person that, um, has probably had a hard life. Definitely had a son at some point, obviously. And, uh, um, that they're just trying to survive. And, and if you can really see their perspective and understand that from their perspective, it's just a wall, you know, so what do they care? You know, they yeah. don't care whether the city insists that building owners repaint their walls to cover graffiti regularly. Mm -hmm. They probably find that as annoying as I do. Um, they don't, they don't see things the same way we do. So once you see that perspective and you understand that they're not scary, it gets really easy yeah, but for the regular person who has the best of intentions. It's tough because to the whole thing looks scary at first. Totally. And, and we've forgotten as a society that there's a lot more that connects us and, and that we have in common with each other than divides us. And, uh, um, I think it's unfortunate because if more people took the approach you did, uh, I think we'd have a lot more outcomes that are, are, um, conducive to positive change in, in our community. I hope so. I hope that yeah. my kids will after that experience and that the people listening, it's to not going to work for everybody yeah. uh, and we can't, there's no silver bullet, but if you take that approach where you're you're starting with kindness and with an interest in somebody i think you know more often than not you're going to find a, a willing recipient to reciprocate that on the other end and and a lot of people who've probably been deprived of it for years yeah and it's uh being smart about it is part of it you know um you know that lady um you had your taser in your back pocket ready to go. <laughs> I could have taken her. I wasn't worried. Uh, 
but you know, she's not getting a key fob and the code to the storage locker in the lobby with all the stuff in it. Like we're going to be smart about it, set yeah. her up for success. You know, we'll give her the stuff. But know. who knows? Maybe, maybe if she consistently performs and builds your trust and there's a mutual level of trust, then that that's very realistic. You know, that happens. It'd be amazing. It, hap- it, it does happen. The people, thought crossed my mind when I was talking th- to her. People I don't think that's possible, but it does happen. It happened. The thought crossed my mind. I walked away and a fleeting thought crossed my mind. I said, I wonder where this might go. Wouldn't yeah. it be amazing if, you know, yeah. you know, ever, ever the optimist or whatever. But I remember bumping into you. Um, I'm connected to Swaziland and I used to you always see you at this uh, annual kind of fundraiser mm-hmm. thing for Swaziland, but I don't remember what it was. What- Youth Education Farms. Yeah. yeah. So we, uh, um, me and, and a good friend, Riley Murray and his brother, uh, Brandon Murray, uh, they have Locarno legacy corporation, uh, doing some great rental development in the city and, uh, uh great business partners of ours. Um, and long-term friends, as you said, uh, had, uh, Riley had done a tenure in Swaziland as a teacher for a summer, um, in a, in a school, an elementary school. And, uh, realized how many students couldn't afford to go to school. And uh, the HIV AIDS rate there, I think is, um, it is one of the highest in the world, if not the highest in the world per capita. And uh, came back and said, I wanna do something about this. And uh, he had connected with another teacher um, in the school, uh, Safiso, and uh, uh, Safiso uh, indicated a mutual interest in pursuing something um, through uh, basically creating an agricultural business that could yield profits that would then uh, be used to send as many children to, to school as we possibly could. And uh, yeah, I think over the years, we've probably sent about 12, 1300 uh, kids uh, to school and some who have, wow, that's many, a huge many, number. many now who are progressing to even post-secondary opportunities and uh, very fulfilling. It's, uh, it's been, uh, um, yeah, over the last 13 years, uh, one of the things that I'm probably um, proudest of. It's so cool. I mean, that country is so messed up. Like it, it's one of these for people who don't know. Iswatini. It's changed names, right? Yeah. It's Iswatini yeah. now. They rebranded yeah. because Swaziland was so bad. Or? Well, I think Swaziland was a colonial name, and Iswatini uh, was the uh, historical, um, um, uh, monarchical uh, uh, name. Yeah, that was a, sort of the original designation. And yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, the monarchy there uh, is interesting, and and it's definitely. Well, let uh, me say it because you're dis- still dis- doing. Dis- there's, there's some di- there's some disparate uh, uh, sort of distribution of. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, um, and the name is better, and I and I'm glad that it's changed. But for those who don't know, it's it's uh, the country is like totally engulfed within South Africa. So they have no other trading partner other than South Africa, the big mm. bully. Uh, and they have they're no, surrounded by completely. Yeah, yeah they're like they're, an they're landlocked. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. very unique that way. Um, they have no coastline, no industry to speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're one of these uh, African countries that has a, a, a king, you know, that mm-hmm. is uh, in complete power. You know, he's got a lot of wives, which is entertaining. I don't know that that's the problem, but they've got, you know, all the, all the, you know, the huge private jets and, and the Rolls Royces and, and so much poverty mm-hmm. and a shocking HIV rate. You know, when I last looked at it, um, the HIV rate there among uh, the overall population, I think was like 40%. Uh, so if you take out the children and the elderly, we're talking about almost all of the sort of like, 
young adults for sure, but even all adults almost, you know, other than the elderly uh, are HIV positive. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, that was one of the things that was most compelling for us to, to lean into um, supporting the children of uh, East Watini, formerly Swaziland, was the fact that many of these kids that Riley had um, encountered were orphans. And uh, I think that's, that's pretty unique uh, in how many children not only could not get educated, but also did not have any parents. And this was, again, an avenue of opportunity that we saw where maybe one at the outset, it was like, if we affect one child who can go and create a fulfilling life and, and a livelihood for themselves and break the cycle and um, be given an opportunity, um, despite the fact that they had, you know, an impoverished life and no parents, then that would make it all worth it. And uh, um, I think we're pretty proud of, of the outcomes. And I'd love to say that I had a, a big part in that, but uh, it's really been Riley Murray who uh, has done all the heavy lifting and really made sure to uh, sustain uh, what we've been, That's our, awesome. what our mission has been. You guys have helped so many kids. Just love the kids. I mean, what kind of miracle is it that an HIV positive mom doesn't give birth to an HIV, HIV mm. positive kid? It's just amazing. Yeah, enter retroviral drugs. It's a, a miracle of science. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, you think the kid would be doomed, but, mm -hmm. you know, they can be uh, perfectly healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you went to, you were on the Christian mission. Are you, are you Christian? Are you faithful? Do you yeah, go to church? I am stuff? Christian. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you feel about UNICEF? I love UNICEF. My, uh, my wife, Sophie, um, who's, uh, really the, 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 the force in our household and in our, our lives, uh, uh, she's, uh, um, part of a, a group called women's unlimited. And, uh, uh, basically they choose a number of different countries in a given year. And, and there's different causes in each country that they get behind and, uh, and go and support, uh, um, you know, particularly youth oriented causes, of course, being UNICEF. And, uh, I think it's one of the most integral, um, organizations to alleviating poverty and childhood, early childhood development and, um, uh, mitigation of disease and, and the list goes on in terms of the causes that they champion. But I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of UNICEF. Absolutely. They do so much amazing work. They only do one thing that bugs me and it, they just aren't into international adoption. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah and and, I'm and you're, you've, yeah. you've adopted. I adopted yeah. from the U S okay. Um, but the reason I'm connected to Swaziland is because yeah. we first went there and, uh, that was the first place that we were going to adopt from. That, that's not, yeah, no, it's uh, UNICEF women's unlimited. And that's where I started to learn and sort of fell in love with the country a little bit, planning to adopt there. We wanted to, uh, learn about the country because we were going to make planning to make the country part of our child's lives, you know, mm -hmm. go back there, visit and make sure that yeah. they were connected to their culture and their history and whatnot. Um, but that didn't work out for us. Just bad luck. You know, mm -hmm. at the time, uh, there's such an abundance of, of, of orphans there, like you mentioned of kids whose parents have passed, um, that it's really just, uh, the only limitation there is just bureaucracy, just a process time of like, you know, kids, you know, gathering, getting the kids organized and getting the, the adoptive parents organized and, and the time it takes to, to work that process. So 
so we entered that process and then um, it probably took a year for us to get to the top of the list. And at the very time we got to the top of the list, uh, they found three uh, Swazi kids. I'll say Swazi because that's what it was at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. They found three Swazi kids uh, in Canada that weren't brought in by the proper channels. And so all these red flags went up. Because, of course, you know, the government of Canada has to worry about uh, child trafficking and all these very serious things to do with, like, how are these kids here without going through the proper channels? Um, And so we waited around for a year for them to kind of figure out what happened for for the program to to start again. And, uh, we were right there at the top of the list and, uh, everybody's encouraging us to stay. Cause as soon as they figured it out, it was just going to restart. And, you know, we were already approved and, you know, like we were the, the fuel in the, in the carburetor of this machine that was going to restart. And then another year went by and during that time found out, um, that it was, it was just some missionaries that just were saving a few kids and just brought them back somehow and, and didn't do it the proper way. And, but it wasn't anybody doing anything bad, but still it took a whole nother year and, uh, and it never did reopen while we were waiting. We waited two years and eventually kind of bailed into, uh, uh, South Carolina. I remember connecting with you during that yeah, period, of, talking period of limbo. Yeah. 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 Because, um, you guys were such great supporters of, of, of youth education farms coming to our events. And, uh, um, I know that it had a very personal connection for you guys and, and, um, the adoption process is already difficult enough, let alone having to be left in a position of what probably felt like helplessness at times, you know, and, uh, that's, that's, that's a deeply personal thing. You're trying to start a family, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a rough patch. I can only, I can only imagine. I, yeah. I can't pretend to know what you guys went through, but, uh, but I want to explain the UNICEF perspective because yeah. it's valid, yeah. you know, but yeah. it just wasn't aligned with what, what I yeah. sort of believed in at the time. And it's related to the, the gas town story I told you, uh, earlier, but, um, I believe that helping one person at a time is a really good approach that it's, uh, it's tangible, it's real, it's personal, it's effective, it's attainable. There's so many good things about it. Like for example, in the Gastown story, I was approached about funding a, a study of the downtown East side and, and how to solve the problem. And, and I really care about it, but I passed because I think there's lots of studies. It's a huge problem. And it seems like when you look at it on mass, it's almost unsolvable. So I really believe that that one person at a time is, is can be an effective approach. And same with international adoption. I think that, um, you know, providing these, these kids with amazing opportunities and a, and a fresh start and parents and all these great things is definitely positive. But I've had awkward dinners with people who see it differently. And their perspective is this, and it's valid, um, but it's that we don't want, we as a country, as, as a local person from Swaziland or wherever, uh, we as a country don't want to lose the best of our kids, um, the, the healthiest, uh, the, you know, the ones that are, that are being offered up to foreigners to be adopted. Um, these are the kids that we want to keep. These are the kids that we want to have become future leaders of our country. These are the kids that the the kids are the future and they're going to save us. You know, this is the mentality and it's not for me to judge, you know, it's their country, it's their people, it's their community and all that kind of stuff. But it, um, but it's awkward, you know, you're eating dinner together and you're talking about helping and Mm -hmm. and funding and doing stuff Mm -hmm. to, to help, help things out. But their perspective is, uh, I felt at the time and still do a little bit that it's just too, 
purist, you know, it's uh, perhaps even unrealistic. I think, I think there's room for both approaches. It's really, if you are going to take the approach of the person you, you articulated, what is the path to realistically ensuring that that vision, which is a noble vision and, and I think very meritous, um, what is the path to realizing that? And do you have the tools and the resources to realistically make that happen? And um, um, I can't pretend to say that I'm an expert or that I could adjudicate each unique situation um, because everything is so different depending on the circumstances. Um, but I think people also need to reflect on whether the ideal that they have for um, a child is going to be realistically de de delivered. And uh, um, I, don't, I don't know that there's really um, a way to solve that uh, because uh, I know people who may believe that they do have that avenue fully fleshed out and, and it's there. And yet a number of other people may look at that and not not buy into the same perspectives and yet who are we to judge that you know um who are we from a different culture from a different country to say that that perspective is not achievable um i i'm very sensitive to um being an outsider coming in and saying that your cultural norms are the way that you would judge um creating an avenue for somebody to be successful to be the future leader is invalid i just won't do that and um I think that, uh, yeah, we have to be sensitive to the fact that uh, there's a lot of diverse viewpoints and cultures out there that that ultimately could succeed uh, in that. And and maybe maybe we'll be the ones proven wrong. I hope we are. Anyways, I I agree with you. And and UNICEF, generally speaking, supports that vision. They and do a lot of great work. They yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing against them. Yeah, they're hard not to like. Um, I remember traveling to New Zealand when I was a kid. My mom's from New Zealand. And. Uh, I went there five times by the time I was 11. And uh, I remember they used to pack, pass around a little box with UNICEF and you'd put your foreign currency in there. Oh, every would... Halloween, I had yeah. a UNICEF box around my yeah. neck and trick or treat. And do you have a couple of coins that I can throw in here? Yeah. 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 Um, and every country is so different. Every situation is different. And there are countries, Swaziland's very good. Um, what was Swaziland at the time, but there are other countries like Russia, for example, where there's a whole bunch of corruption in, yeah. in international adoption. And it probably really should not happen because it's, yeah, it can be nasty. I also think we have to be very careful that we don't try to superimpose our societal norms or our cultural ideologies on other cultures and other societies. And uh, that's where it becomes very difficult because on a human level, you may think you have the solution to a problem yet. Um, I think if somebody can find a solution and it allows that child to remain within their culture, there's some virtues to that. Uh, but again, it's not always going to to work out that way. And um, I think, as I said earlier, there's there's certain um, instances where one approach is warranted, and like anything, the other could be as well. It, it just yeah, it's so circumstantial. Have you heard of this? Uh this documentary, it's on Netflix, like a real story about a family that adopted a, a girl from Russia. And uh, it's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and she ends up like trying to kill the parents or something. Like, wow. like I can't believe someone I've, recommended it to me because I've not seen family. that one. But <laughs> if you have the name, I need to add it to the list. <laughs> oh, Nick, Nick will look it up. Yeah. I think it's probably the last movie I should ever watch, but I'm told it's, <laughs> it's terrifying and, and really, really good. Let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about uh, boats. 
What kind of boat do you have? Uh, we have a 25 foot Chris Craft Corsair. It's a great runabout, uh, perfect to get around the coast and take our kids out. And we have great weekends on the water. And I was uh, fortunate enough to grow up in a sort of boating household. We had a 21 foot Sea uh, Ray. 1976 Siri, I think. And uh, my dad owned it with a friend of his and uh, just island hopping, you know, and it was some of the best memories I've I've had in my life. And we made some lifelong friends through that. So, yeah, um, yeah boating is is obviously something that um, isn't accessible to everybody, but uh, feel very privileged to have had that opportunity. And and um, yeah, it's uh it's a great outlet. I, I, it's amazing. Cause I often, anytime I get out on the water, I look back at our city and not only, and, and I'm, and I'm enamored by the beauty, but I reflect often on how few people get to experience our city that way from the water, you know, how, yeah. how, how few people have the opportunity to get out there. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate cause it is a really, really cool way to see not just our city, but the whole region there's so many things that you could go and adventure and do and there's no lines painted on the road you know it's uh it's freedom i think i love it so much and i think some people do see it you know i, I live on the north shore so i go up the indian arm a oh, lot yeah. the north arm and uh there's constantly uh tourist boats flying up there you know packed with people in life jackets going to look at uh i think the old power station granite falls maybe right down to the end to the uh uh, to the wigwam, uh, something like that. But yeah. And, and my go-to taking people out is, um, is exactly that just going slow and looking at the city from the water. Yeah. And, you know, of course they're often real estate people and I'm talking about the buildings and all of the, the kind of history of that. Uh, but that, I love it too, so much. In fact, my, uh, friend and mechanic just called me and I'll probably go by the boathouse on the way home tonight. Nice. I'm taking my sister out for Great day for birthday it. on uh, Saturday. Can't wait. Mm. What's this movie called? Natalia Grace? Is that it? Oh my God. It looks terrifying. Yeah. Nobody's a winner in that situation. I feel, <laughs> I feel terribly for, for her to be in a position where. Well, who knows what she went through? Yeah. She's from the to Ukraine. have to go and, and yeah, or to be subjected to that. I mean, yeah. Tragedy. Yeah. But she did apparently try to kill the people. So she can't be. Yeah. Nice. I mean, Yeah. Not totally innocent, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! Anyways, are you gonna watch that? I it's on my list. Is now. it now? Yeah. <laughs> my curiosity is is yeah gonna kill me. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like driving past a car wreck. You just you don't want to look, but you look. And it's well, why just... does the highway slow down when there's no like it could be off on the shoulder? Yeah. You know? Human nature. It's or you're in the other opposite lane going the other way and, and you're like, why is down? everybody super why are we going so slowly? It's well That's yeah. why. Because of human nature. It is human nature. I've seen maybe not in Vancouver, but in other cities, they actually put up like a visual shield uh kind of a thing just to keep traffic moving. Yeah. You know, because because of this, because of this gross part of our but, of our personality. But look at the way that society's gone in in sort of an amplified version of that where takedowns are now the new blood sport you know it's like who can we pick to call out for x y or z reason and take them down and it's a you know the carnage yeah. is what people savor you know you just spend five minutes on twitter and you see it and it's uh it's disgusting yeah. it's it's very unhealthy and i think um 
only just divides us more and yeah. contributes to this sense of tribalism that is uh, is such a major issue in in our in our society these days. Have you seen Chimp Empire? I haven't. No, you got to put that on your I'm, list. It's so ter- I'm terrible. I'm like trying to get through succession, let alone uh, <laughs> Chimp Empire. Yeah. 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 It's so good. Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, we've all seen nature documentaries, but, uh, this particular group of chimps have had scientists around them for their whole lives. So they're very comfortable with people being around. And so these, these, uh, photographers, these cinematographers, um, with some lightweight equipment got so incredibly close and so incredibly ingrained in, in the community. Uh, but you just reminded me of it because of uh, this human nature, this take what you call takedown of um, we're over 98% genetically the same as these chimps. Yeah. <laughs> it's creepy. Yeah. And we seem to be in so many ways, just chimps wearing really nice blazers <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. light blue shirts. And- <laughs> well, yeah, I, I spend most of my day just smashing my keyboard like a chimp too. <laughs> oh man, this was fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Thanks for having it. me, Cam. I always enjoy a conversation with you. It's uh, it's it's always great. Yeah, likewise. Really enjoy the relationship. Thank you. Thank you.